Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. to draw your attention to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, maybe still open from the Lord's Supper, we'll be in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 19 this morning. Continue to go through this series on learning about the church. What is the church? Various metaphors or analogies used for the church to help us understand who the church is, what is the church, what does the church do. Even last week as we saw, as I thought about uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we don't want to be those to whom the Lord would say, you didn't get it. You didn't get what the church was or was supposed to be about. And so we pray that we would continue to grow in our understanding who we are to be as Christ's church. So would you stand with me as I read Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 19 this morning. As I finish verse 19, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Dear Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning 
with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine for a moment that there is a knock at your front door in the middle of the night. And the knocking won't stop. Maybe you just turned over in your bed hoping that it would go away. But the knocking persists. It keeps going. As you groggily make your way to the front door, first you try to look out and see who it is. You don't recognize the couple. But there in the middle of the night stand two people, a husband, a wife, man, a woman, knocking at your door. What do you do? Do you answer it? Do you ignore it? Praying that it will just go away? Maybe they won't know that we're not home. Let's just say for a moment that you open the door to these people, but not too far, just a crack, just enough to find out who they are and what they want. They say something like this. We've heard that you are a Christian. We are Christians as well. We're not from around here. We are being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Do you have a place where we can stay the night? What do you say? Do you turn them away? Or do you let them in? What runs through your mind as you try to quickly make this decision? <laughs> I don't know these people from Adam. Are they lying to me? Are they safe? Can they be trusted? Are they trying to take advantage of me? I don't know them. They are strangers, and strangers are dangerous. But then we remember Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, that says this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We tend to focus on the last part of that verse, don't we? Have we entertained angels unaware of it? Are these people angels in disguise? Here's the point of that last part of the verse. You won't know it. <laughs> you won't have a clue. You've entertained them unaware. Completely dense of the situation. How thick can we be? How dense do we have to be? So dense that we won't even know if we've invited angels into our house because we will be completely clueless of it. But now... Focus on the first part of that verse for a moment. Show hospitality to strangers. Are we willing to do that? These are people that you do not know. They're not family members asking for a place to stay. They're not your next-door neighbor. 
knocking on your door in the middle of the night. These are people who are completely strange to you. Strangers without a home, without the comfort of what is familiar, without a place that they can call their own. Would we hesitate? Or do we just say, sorry, we can't let you in? Would we be standoffish or suspicious? Why would we act such a way? Why would such a dilemma, and I'm taking a little leap here to say that it would be a dilemma for us to do that, why would we wrestle if we would let these people in our house or not? Is it ever because we've forgotten that we were at one time strangers? This is where the Apostle Paul begins in this section of our text this morning. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, a church with whom he'd spent a considerable amount of time, a church made up predominantly of Gentiles. These are people who are not of Jewish ethnicity, and Paul wants them in these verses to remember. And look at what it says there, verse 11. Therefore, remember, Eric has already brought our minds to the first part of chapter 2, talking about this great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, where we, who were once dead, who could do nothing, God made alive through Jesus Christ. And we look at this and we think of the salvation that has been given to us personally, but think of how Paul makes this transition. He says, focus on this great salvation that has come to you from God's grace as a gift from Him to you. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Look at this. Remember this. And therefore, based on this, remember who you are as a church. Remember who you are as the people of God. But that's not where he starts, is it? Precisely. He gets there. But he goes back again to this place where we were before Christ. Therefore, remember. Paul wants them to remember, and he says this even two times, the beginning of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. Similarly, like he reminds us of who we were before Christ in verse 1, dead in trespasses and sins. Why remember? Why this repeated twice? Remember, remember. Remembrance motivates humility and gratitude. Where have I come from? I've not come from a great place. I've not come from a place of position or of great Privilege, I've come from somewhere lowly. I've come from something that even is not, is nothing, is less than. It also motivates gratitude, thankfulness in our hearts. Because look at what it says. Remember at one time. At one time, this is what you were. Look back at one time. Remember that time in the past? You're not there anymore. You're not there any longer. You're in a different place now. Thank God that you are not left in that place. 
Remember the change that's happened in your life. Remember what God has done to bring about that change, to bring about that transformation. Remembrance motivates humility and gratitude. So what was our state, these people's state, Paul is writing to? Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, the ones who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is, the Jews, ethnically Jewish people, those were the people of the circumcision. They bore the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. What's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Those set out as the descendants, marked out as the descendants of Abraham, to whom it was promised that they would be blessed with a great name, a multitude of descendants, and with a land. And now it's these, the Jews, who use this derogatory term for the Gentiles, calling them uncircumcised. It was not good to be called the uncircumcised. It meant to demean the Gentiles, saying they were no members of the covenant, they were cut off from the people of God, and even worse, they were cut off from God himself. They did not have the promise of the offspring of Abraham through whom the whole of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. For the Jews, the external marker on one's body became everything. They derided the Gentiles. They called them dogs, the lowest of the society. Jews couldn't eat with Gentiles. They couldn't associate with Gentiles. It was so bad for the Jew to have this close proximity to the Gentiles that this is what one historian says. It was not lawful to render help to a Gentile mother with child in her hour of need because that would bring another Gentile into the world. And if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such a contract with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. So not only would you turn your back on a Gentile mother who's about to give birth to her child in her time of need, if your son or daughter married a Gentile, you might as well have their funeral. It's like their death. They're cut off. You don't acknowledge them anymore. anymore. They are shamed. They are out of the family. Such animosity was simply based on this external marker of circumcision. And notice how Paul says it here, made in the flesh by hands, which points us to a greater reality, doesn't it? A greater reality that the whole point of circumcision was not that it depicted an external reality, but that external reality was to be a reflection of an inward reality of one's heart. So we read this in Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
That's what it is for the Christian. It's not an external physical marker. It's a heart circumcision. It's a circumcision that's done by Christ, a circumcision that's not done with hands, a circumcision that is a spiritual circumcision that shows that our whole lives, all that we are, mind, heart, body, soul, everything is Jesus's. But externally, it did not look good for the Gentiles. There's this animosity then that we are reminded of in verse 11. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that animosity. But Paul also wants us to remember this. Verse 12, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ. There is no worse news than to be separated from Christ. For to be separated from Him is to be separated from His love, from His forgiveness, from His righteousness, from His salvation and wisdom and redemption. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin and bound by the power of sin. Separated from Christ, we are deserving of the lake of fire separated from his resurrection life, his ministry of compassion and grace, we are Christless if we are separated from Christ. But, Paul also says, we are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We weren't citizens of Israel. We were aliens. They were the chosen people of God. They had been entrusted with the oracles of God. There was much advantage to being a Jew in every way. Jesus even says salvation is of the Jews. But Paul reminds us, you were not citizens of that nation. You didn't have those privileges. You didn't have those things afforded to you. So not only were we Christless, we were stateless. But there's more. We were strangers to the covenant of the promise. Very literally, that's what it says. We were strangers to the covenant of the promise. What's the covenant of the promise? Well, as you look back in the Old Testament, all of these covenants, whether it's the covenant there at creation, whether it's the covenant with Abraham, whether it's the covenant with Noah, whether it's the covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, whether it's the covenant with David, they all pointed to a Messiah. They all pointed to the hope of a Redeemer that is Jesus Christ. Without this, without this, we were strangers to the covenant of promise. What do these covenants remind us of? They remind us of relationships relationship between two parties, relationships between two people even. Strangers to such a relationship. Such a relationship first and foremost with God, but also such a relationship with the community of other people. The covenants were to remind and bind the people to God, but they were also to bind them to one another. And so we might put it this way, while we were 
Christless, while we were stateless, we were also friendless. But it's going from bad to worse. Now we have no hope. That's the next thing there in the list, isn't it? Having no hope. What did we have to look forward to before Christ? We didn't have anything to look forward to. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The covenants of the promise and hope are both forward-looking. They look for something in the future. But there was no future for us before Christ but death. Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and what's the last one? Godless. Without God in the world, we had no true knowledge of God, and so had absolutely no fellowship with God. All of these put together means we were on the outside looking in. We were strangers. We were not part of God's family. We were not able to participate as a part of His household. We had no claim, no right to any of His benefits as being a part of His household. And worst of all, worst of all, we had no access to God Himself. In such a state, what are we to do? In such a state, we would despair. But thanks be to God that he did not leave us in that state. Thanks be to God that he brought us into his household. How is it? How did God take us from being strangers, aliens, lowlifes, outcasts, nothing, and bring us into his house? Why didn't he slam the door in our face and leave us on the porch and say, sorry, there's no room here. Sorry, we can't be bothered. Sorry, you're strangers and dangerous. I can't let you into my house. He would have every right to do that. But he didn't. So how did God bring us into his household? Well, three truths I want us to focus on this morning as we seek to answer that question. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if this is helpful. It required a great sacrifice to, to unify us with each other as members of God's household. It required a great sacrifice to unify us with each other as members of God's household. When Paul here presses home our desperate condition to be remembered, he does that so then he can remedy it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as if to say, look, see how hopeless you were. Look how far you were away from God. Look, it was the worst, most deplorable condition you could ever imagine. But in Christ Jesus, look at the Savior. Look to the Messiah of the covenants, of the promise. He is now yours. You, being separated from Christ, did not keep Christ from moving towards you in love and grace and salvation and rescue. Look at these words here. 
but now in Christ Jesus. Those are the most beautiful words. Those are like music to our ears that we could ever hear. It was all what Christ did for us. He didn't leave us in that wretched condition. He did something to remove that spatial distance between us and God. We who were far off from God are brought near to God, to have access to God. God's people are those who are known to be near to God. In fact, if you have your Bibles, just flip back to Deuteronomy 4 for a second. Fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? It's a question, but what's the answer? No one. Look at this great nation we are. We have the Lord God who is near to us and He answers us when we call. That's what Israel is saying there in Deuteronomy. But then flip over to Psalm 148. Psalm 148, verse 14. Towards the very end of the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, Psalm 148, verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are what? Near to him. Praise the Lord. What is Paul saying to us in Ephesians 2? You who were not a people, you who were far off from God, have now been brought near to God. Christ has brought us near to God. Is this the reality that you live in every single day? That you are one who lives near to God. Because of what Christ has done for you. There is no other way to be near to God than through Jesus Christ. And particularly, how have we been brought near to God? Through His death. Do you see that there? You who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. That's how we are brought near. By what Jesus has done on the cross. The precious blood of Jesus. He shed his blood as our substitutionary sacrifice. That is what Jesus did in our place. He bore our sins. He paid the penalty in full so that we might be brought to God and be God's people. This is the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God that has given us access to God. And this has done something Amazing to the horizontal relationships that we have with one another in the church. What does it say here going on? For or because he himself is our peace. 
Jesus Christ is the embodiment of our peace. He is, we think about what it says in Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. Our peace is not in a document. It's not in a treaty. It's not in a truce. Our peace is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And him being our peace means that we are at peace as the people of God in the church. Christ has died to make us one. Who is this talking about? Both Jew and Gentile. We are one because of Christ. And Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That is, Jesus Christ was crucified to remove or break down the hostility between Jew and Gentile. This could very well be referring to a fence that was in the temple. So in the temple court, there were different sections. There was the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to come into the temple and you wanted to worship Yahweh, that's where you had to stay. And guess what? The court of the Gentiles was the furthest court away from the actual temple building or structure. And then there was a fence around the next court, which was the court of Israel. And there was a little placard there on that fence that warned the Gentiles that if they crossed that line, if they crossed that barrier, if they went past that fence, they would be executed. It was death if you went past the blockade. But what did Jesus do? He tore down the fence. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility through the cross by his sacrifice. How did he do it? What does it say here? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. This is the Mosaic law, and I think most likely those laws that were meant to bring a distinction between Jew and Gentile. So Christ's crucifixion meant he was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, the the record of debt that we could not keep because we could not keep the law. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so the law can no longer condemn us because we are in Christ. He fulfilled the law, so it can go on to say, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. Remember that? Jews ate differently than Gentiles. There were certain things that Jews couldn't eat to show them as distinguished from Gentiles. So, Paul, this is, this is Colossians 2, verse 14 and 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon. So there are these particular days, right, that you would celebrate as the Jewish people that would set you apart from the Gentiles, or a Sabbath. There's another separation between Jew and Gentile. These were the commandments expressed in ordinances which were to separate Jews and Gentiles but what does Paul say? Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are no longer to be separated. Christ died so that he might create a new humanity. Do you see that there? Verse 15, the middle of it, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One 
new, unified people of God in Christ. Those who no longer have Adam as their representative head, but now those who have the second Adam, the last Adam as their representative head, Jesus Christ. So now we are new creations in the new covenant together, Jew and Gentile. Let me say it explicitly again, what Paul says here plainly, Jesus creates in himself one new man, not two new men, not two different humanities, one unified humanity because it is a humanity unified in him and by him. Jesus Christ died to bring his people together. Christ did not die to unify you and your co-workers. Jesus did not die to unify you and your neighbors. Jesus did not die to unify the United States of America. Jesus did not die to unify your biological family. But Jesus did die to unify the church. What Christ has brought together, let us not tear asunder. What hostility is there between those who are God's people? There must be no hostility because Christ has sacrificed himself to break down that hostility. Hostility between believers is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died to unify us as members of God's household. But number two, it required a great sacrifice to reconcile us to God as members of God's household. It required a great sacrifice to reconcile us to God as members of God's household. So not only did it take a great sacrifice to reconcile us together as God's people, but now God brings us, all of us, so that we are reconciled to God. The basis for us to be unified with each other is the fact that we are at peace with God. That is, we have been reconciled to Him. Look at what it says. Verse 16, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus was killed to kill the hostility between God and man. While Christ was being killed at one and the same time, he was doing the most crucial and necessary killing that has ever been done, a killing of what separated God and man. Just as he tore down the hostility between men as the perfect man, so he also slew the great giant of hostility between God and man as the Son of God. And so both Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith. We have peace with God. The horizontal peace between Jew and Gentile, the horizontal peace between us or any group of people is only possible through the vertical peace between humanity and God. This is what Paul is proclaiming here, this great peace that was promised in the Old Testament, a peace with God 
Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Listen, who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus fulfilled these verses through his death and resurrection. It is this gospel of peace which means we have access to the Father in one spirit. Notice here again, Jesus brings these groups together, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, whatever other groups you want to talk about. Those who put their faith in Jesus are all brought together into one because there is one spirit. There's not multiple spirits, there's one spirit. And it's through this one spirit that we have access to our Father. The same Spirit dwells in both Jew and Gentile Christians. And it's in this way that we can do what Hebrews 4.16 tells us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We've been reconciled to God. And our vertical relationship, being restored with Him, makes our horizontal relationships possible. How is it, how is it that we are able to forgive one another? You ever find that difficult? How can you forgive someone that has wronged you? How can you forgive someone who sinned against you? Would you remember that through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, God does not hold our sins against us? He has forgiven us and cleansed us. Maybe we would do well to remember that if God forgave us so much, surely. Surely we can forgive one another. Number three. It results in great privilege for us as members of God's household. It results in great privilege for us as members of God's household. What's the result of this great sacrifice that united both Jews and Gentiles into one people who are reconciled to God? This great transformation that takes place We are no longer strangers or aliens. But now we are fellow citizens. So there's that language again. Remember once we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but we're no longer alienated from that commonwealth. Now we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we're members of the household of God. No longer are we Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless, we who were far off have been given access to God himself. We've been brought into the very house of God, not to be a guest, but to be his children, to be a part of his family, his household. Not some second-rate citizen, not some second-rate child. Notice, even in the verse before this, we have access to who? The Father, our Father, 
we have the rights and privileges as those who are welcome to eat at the table of the king as the king's sons and daughters. All of our disadvantages have been reversed. (laughs) Imagine for a moment that you had let that couple in to stay at your house. Those strangers had spent the night at your house. And you wake up in the morning, maybe hoping that they have already left. But instead of that, you find them there in your kitchen with the fridge open. How would that make you feel? There's something interesting about a fridge, isn't it? Like if someone were to look in your fridge, kind of feel exposed, like what's in my fridge? Maybe even not many people have fridge privileges in your house. Like if I came into your house, I wouldn't probably just go and open your fridge. Maybe you'd feel offended if I did. (laughs) There's fridge privileges with God (laughs) in God's household. There's privileges greater than that. Privileges of being called one of his own. Privileges that he will never leave you or forsake you. Privileges that he sees everything and he still loves you. Privilege that he will never let you go. Are you a member of God's household? Do you know the privilege of being his child? Or are you on the outside looking in? Are you in the desperate condition of being separated from Christ? If so, today is the day that you can be brought near if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you would confess that you are a sinner before God, dead in your trespasses and sins, and say, I know I am a sinner, but I am going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and on the work that he did on the cross to save me from my sins. You will be forgiven. You will not be a stranger on the porch. You'll be a child in the house. Look to the cross upon which Christ died. The cross where he made peace between you and God. So now you can have access to God the Father. And so now you can be at peace with your brothers and sisters. The church is God's household. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We ask that we have ears to hear what you would say to us through your word. Let us be this family, this household of God. Let us see what great sacrifice was required to make us this household. It was nothing less than the blood of Jesus that's brought us together 
It's nothing less than the blood of Jesus that binds us together. And so let us love one another. Let us be at peace and unified with one another. Let us serve one another. Let our relationships with one another be an accurate reflection of the fact that we are those who are reconciled to God. And may this ministry of reconciliation go out into the world. That many, many more might be reconciled to God as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.